Hello, magical being. You have made your way to the Rose Woman podcast on love and liberation, and I am your host, Christine Marie Mason. I wish you could be with me right now in this perception of the interconnected, flowing, perfect symphony of material reality working as one. From your own body, from your bones and blood, and your organs and your skin and your mind, to the energetic forces that interpenetrate you, the sound and light and vibration of all of it that extends out from your body, the breath that goes in and out of your body, the way the very planet you're standing on is holding you to it, the magma at the core of the earth is sucking you into it, the energy of the core of the magma of earth is holding the atmosphere to it and creating this small, potent planetary theater of experience, and it's probably doing that with cellular planets all over the universe. How your embodiment is wanted, how you, by virtue of being alive, are an expression of life wanting itself, a continuation of the process of living, and that how most of our suffering comes when we're in the contracted state of I where we believe that we have to measure up to some social requirement of being different or better. Something that was imposed upon us, we have to somehow like topiary ourselves to learn how to live in this life. I want to read you something that I wrote earlier this week. Your body-mind, as one single creation, is wired to move in and out of unity consciousness and the normal contracted consciousness as the individual self at will. Let me just say that again. Unity consciousness or the ecstatic expanded state of being all one and the normal contracted consciousness of being a little person in a little body, just a small animal self, that those two states can be transited at will willingly forgetting that you are the universe for the pleasure and challenge and experience of being individuated and willingly remembering that you are the universe so that you can rest and be replenished and have more trust and joy and confidence and awe and existence. These are choices. They're the access points. The truth is that the one pervasive energy that animates all things animates you. Now, that all sounds flowery and good, and I will acknowledge that the at-will part, flipping in and flipping out, ooh, I'm the light of consciousness, ooh, here I am doing the dishes, that sometimes getting to that state takes guidance and practice, but not always, because it's accessible through things that are built into your remembering, into your own DNA. The at-will comes through breath work, meditation, ritual and entrainment like dancing, song, drumming, through molecules and plant medicines, through sacred sexuality, and so many more expansion aids. And when you have practiced enough, or if you have the karmic grace to get there without practice, you can just ping back and forth between these two states. I said before that it was like flipping a switch. You would go like, oh, Turn the switch on, pervasive divine light in the field. Turn the switch the other way, focus light as a body. 
But then actually I thought it's not a switch. It's more like a gradual turning or an oscillator. It's definitely not one or the other. And as I said before, most suffering comes in the contracted state. When you can move in and out of unification consciousness, you take a lot of things less seriously. And especially you take so many of the human systems and externally imposed dramas, or maybe even internally adopted dramas, less seriously. You know how to engage, and you know also that engaging at all is a choice. You can see how many human systems are designed to keep people focused on playing the game of material reality and to often even gate the ecstatic state because being in power seems to be one thing people like to try when they're playing the individual material game, but so does being powerless. Do you like being powerless? Do you like letting other people's stories of how one should be and where your validation should come from or the culture's definition of that? Do you like that? If you don't like that, today's episode is for you because I'm going to talk philosophy and invite you into a very different kind of understanding of the I as an expanded and interconnected creature and give you some philosophy 101 memos on where the idea that we are the mind and nothing else came from. Once upon a time, we saw the world more in black and white, a woman in a white dress and a man in a black tuxedo standing on top of a multi-tiered cake and having blue or pink children. And that was the way it was. And if you weren't in that dominant story, you were sort of fringed or you hid yourself and pretended. But we know that a large portion of the population are not in that story. They're colorful, toucan, rainbow, gorgeous symphonies of identities. In my lifetime, we've gone from this mono story to a much more blended and awake story. The rainbow flag said, hey, look, there are men who love men and women who love women. More recently, we got the trans flag, which adds in the blue and pink and white and black triangles, which say there are many forms of intersex and many forms of places where the external presentation doesn't line up with the internal experience or the sexual preference of a person. And this got me to thinking about those color picker maps that you use when you're doing design work and you kind of find exactly the shade, the hyperpixelation of exactly the shade you're looking for and that the real color of the flag, the real flag for the variety of subjective experience and expression of divine consciousness would look more like that, an infinite gradation of every possible color, every possible saturation and shade. To live in a way where we are not automatically categorizing people, sorting them into stripes and triangles and circles, sorting them by race, age, identity, And instead, being attuned and present with the exact unique expression in front of us, that would be a very beautiful way to live. And it would also significantly take away a lot of our political conflicts, I believe. So if you hold the view, like I do, that every person is a spectacular example of a unique configuration of experiences 
and preferences and worldviews and DNA and past and transgenerational experiences that still are carried in them, you, you can do nothing but sort of stop and be in wonder. So one of the things that I love about traveling is you spend a lot of time in the space between, you know, I'm a very task-focused person, and with my cell phone, I can be busy basically all the time, checking things off the list. So spaciousness creates this opportunity to read the book of life through the presence of individual people in a way that I don't get a lot in day-to-day life, in my dominant life. So for example, yesterday I was traveling and on the plane, I met a woman coming from Paris to India where she spends four months of the year and she was on her way to a sacred music festival in Jodhpur and she and I began speaking about how India seems to carry with it this vibration of 10,000 years of uninterrupted inquiry into the nature of reality, into divine consciousness, and how exciting and refreshing it is, and how colorful, and how the entire culture is so intent on living out loud and being in each other's business, that it's the ultimate in not lonely. And I met another man who was coming to India for the first time, and he had intended to meet his fiance, but she broke up with him over email. And he was coming anyway to sort of see what he could see. I learned also about my own bias because I got into the taxi at the Coimbatore airport and there was a man driving me up to the hotel and he had a little Ganesha statue on his dashboard and jasmine flowers hanging over his rearview mirror. And I assumed that he was sort of a South Indian Hindu, but in fact, he's a Christian and a devotee of Mary. And he began making the sign of the cross every time we passed a Mary chapel. As he began to speak, my driver saw that I peeked up a little bit when I heard him speak about the animals. And so being a local in the Nilgiri Mountains, he went deeper and deeper and deeper into telling me all of these stories and facts about the animals, animal conservation, how they lived, the spirit they carried with them, and how they viewed the elephant families in particular who lived in this mountainscape. I don't know. I just remembered. I just remembered the beauty and uniqueness that exist in each person. And that sort of set me up for today's topic, which is the identity and who are we really. So I begin with those short stories just to put us in the mind frame of the very subjective nature of being alive, that no two people will look at the exact same situation and draw the same conclusions from it, or very few. Most of you are in the West, just judging from who's downloading the show. So I'm going to make the assumption that most of us are people who grew up steeped in Western thought and that we have been and maybe do to ourselves this thingification. We objectify ourselves and we are called individuals. Uh, People in Western thought have been sort of autonomous individual objects, and that's got some pros and cons like your unique characteristics and contained mind distinguishes you from others. And that results in a generally high placement 
of the value of individual rights like freedom of speech and freedom of religion and the right to privacy, which are all designed to protect the autonomy and dignity of the individual, which ironically, in the way that I understand it, then protects divinity because the entire intent of divinity is for each individual to be in their fullest possible expression. And I feel like this kind of individuality, which emphasizes cognitive liberty, bodily autonomy, you know, that's all amazing. Go team freedom. This worldview says that each person has dignity and worth and inherent value and is capable of making a meaningful contribution. So, so far, so good. But what is this self or the individual? The way we see it is not the only way. In many ancient and indigenous traditions, the self is really seen as an intrinsic part of a larger human and natural organism, part of a whole that's an inseparable field. And in the modern world, this self is widgetized to a thing that has to perform, to be graded, to prove its worth. You know, that part of the individuality isn't so great. And that part is really deeply rooted in Christianity and its conception of a separation between God and people, that God and people are two separate things, that spirit and material reality are separate. And in this frame of tunis or dualism, where you see the individual as something that's created by God outside of it, and in this world view, the individual has a divine purpose to love and serve God and others, to make choices to be a better, more moral and more spiritual being. This worldview often holds that the earth plane is a trial and that if you do it right, you might be able to get to somewhere else to go be with God in the afterlife and some sort of imaginary perfect afterlife. And in this cosmology, all things earthly become degraded. The natural world and even your body uh, represent a falling away from grace. The world is a testing ground for a moral life and eventually to be transcended. Uh, there are some strains within the church of honoring the earth with reverence and care and embodiment with reverence and care, but literally there are church leaders who say that without humans to witness it, the world would cease to exist. Anyway, so in this frame, life as an individual I is often about improvement or conforming or earning the right to exist and belong. In this model, we value self-reliance and we carry a lot alone. But here's a spoiler alert for the rest of our chat today. The indigenous cultures that I talked about before, they already have a more holistic understanding of the individual, and we can borrow from them. The Hopi, for example, build their entire culture off of deep belonging, knowing that a person's well-being is created through the relationships with community, ancestors, environment, and the spiritual realm. That well-being comes from balance and harmony within oneself, yes, and with the world around them. Connection, reciprocity, and kinship are the default and don't need to be sought. And in my tradition, the bhakti yoga or devotional world, the questions of human life aren't about these things at all. Life is simply a commitment to fully expressing love for the divine in all of its forms with no self-optimization or individual purpose required. And in Tantra, it goes even farther. The question of human life is to fully and deeply experience and express everything that comes your way. So I'm going to go back now for a minute to the West and give you a little 
philosophy 101, just in case we're not all on the same page. And I'm going to say ahead of time that it's the next couple of minutes is going to be a whole lot of white dudes because there's where the ideas that were documented. I do have a hunch looking at some of the readings of the 13th century mystic female Hildegard von Bingen. I know I've talked about her before y'all, but she was really wonderful, like wrote down all the plant healing traditions was sort of the link between Germanic paganism and Christianity. She wrote operas. I mean, you know, she was a head of an abbey. She was pretty awesome. So some of her stuff was kept alive in parallel, despite quite a few attempts to kill it off. But that work didn't get named in the main lineage of Western ideology. So I'm just going to give you a few names to know on how the West's concept of the self or the I has evolved and continues to evolve so that you can sort of find your own worldview in these theories. Like, how has your understanding of who a person is or of who you are been implicitly influenced by these ideas and which do you think are actually true for you? So are we the mind? About 400 years ago, the mind really came into favor as the seat of identity. Rene Descartes, with his uh, famous saying, I think, therefore I am, sort of asserted that humans are made up of two distinct substances, a material body and an immaterial mind, and that the mind is the true essence of the person and the body is simply a vehicle that the mind inhabits. And the individual, therefore, is primarily identified with the thinking rational mind and the idea that we are the mind persists in many people even now, but it sort of leaves the body quite orphaned. And what I think of some people I know, for me, it is their body that makes them them, the way they flow on the floor, the way they dance, or the way they laugh, or their, their body is the instrument that they're playing and is inherently a part of them. And of course, we now know how much of our mind and our gut and our endocrine system is all moving of a piece, like the mind is sort of the conscious elocutor of what is going on in the whole system. And incidentally, Descartes did some of his most potent work on human anatomy and physiology and other big topics like the about embodiment, but decided not to publish them while he was alive because of the Catholic Church's persecution of Galileo. The risk of being put to death for having thoughts and putting them in writing, that is still happening on earth. But just to say that he didn't stop with, I think, therefore I am, that's just a place where his writing sort of caught a tailwind and, you know, was pushed into the mainstream. After Descartes, we get to, are we self-defining? This was another major movement in the concept of the self that coincided with the Industrial Revolution. You probably know the early existentialists like Soren Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, uh, they challenged the traditional idea of the I as a created entity created by something else, and they made the I into a self-evolving entity. They said that there is no inherent or predetermined essence to a person. Rather, each individual has to define themselves through their experiences and choices, that the individual is responsible for creating meaning and authenticity in their own lives. The self is a constantly evolving dynamic project defined by choices and actions and really led by self-awareness. Building on that, the thinking really kept evolving. You see Hegel and Sartre making those choices 
of self-definition less controllable. They basically said that we're a collection of relationships and experiences, that who we are is deeply intertwined with our social and historical context, and that our identity is shaped by our relationships with others and the societies in which we live. Locke and Hume made this into an even broader collection bin. They said the self is a collection of experiences, sensations, and perceptions, which are shaped by our individual interactions with the external world. An example of this might be gender or race, where we are constructed by culture. So gender, for example, plays a significant role in how individuals understand and define themselves in relationship to others with socially constructed roles, behaviors, and expectations that are associated with being male or female in the culture. So who am I gets answered through a cultural lens. It got a little bit more interesting in the 60s and there were a couple of philosophers sort of at the turn of the 21st century who said it's not just about what we experience and take in, but the stories we form about their meaning, that we are stories, recur and Taylor in particular. So this idea is that the self is narrative and that our identity is largely shaped by the stories we tell ourselves and the narratives we create to make sense out of our lives. And in this story, the self is constantly being created and recreated in an ongoing process of weaving together memories, experiences, and values into one coherent narrative, one coherent story. Taylor, in particular, fused linguistics, how the language we use creates our world with the self, way before NLP, affirmations, and cognitive behavioral therapy really took hold. So the idea that that you are programmable through your language really began to influence how we walk in the world and how we understand ourselves. Like we are much more plastic now. Like I would never now just say, oh, that's just the way I am or take it or leave it. That's a Christine for you. Now I, I would be confident that if there was something that I wasn't enjoying about my life or embodiment, that I could change it through language and habit and training and exposure therapy, basically being exposed to people who are doing it differently. So you can already see that if you're living in 2024, that the idea of the self and what makes the self has evolved and continues to evolve. Many people are followers of neurolinguistic programming, which was widely popularized in the 80s and 90s, invented originally in the 70s by two psychologists at the University of California at Santa Cruz, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, who was a linguist. And NLP suggests that our perception of reality, including our sense of self, is largely a construct of our mind. It implies that the way we think, interpret experiences, and use language shapes our personal reality. And since our self-perception is constructed through neurolinguistic maps, it's changeable. That means that we can alter our self-concept and behaviors through changing our thought patterns and language use, that our capacity to change and control our mental and emotional states is exceptional. We're not just passive recipients of external circumstances, but have deep agency and can reframe and reshape these personal experiences. And it underscores the significant role that language plays in constructing our self-identity. But I want to back out a little bit because even the way that I'm telling you this story of the Western view of the individual self is sort of resting on this increasing focus on the individual subjective self as worthy of being looked at. 
And that brings me to another topic, which is there was a time when there was no idea of a psychological self. It was an invention. Can you imagine living before there was a concept of a psychological self? We, we move from philosophical concepts about what it means to be human to diagnosing the mind and emotions and breaking down behaviors and ways of being into pathologies. So, you know, you see that Western psychology in particular places a super strong emphasis on the individual and often views the individual as a separate entity distinct from its social, cultural, and ecological context. Like, you can go to therapy and fix the problems of the systems you're in. I don't know. Like, sometimes what is deemed insane behavior is a sane reaction to an insane world. But Western psychology for a long time largely took you out of that context. So whether you focus on individual personality traits, the way we think or cognitive process or emotional experience, you know, whether it's Freud or Jung, that we're looking at unconscious aspects of the self, personal development and self-actualization. But in recent years, we're starting to unwind that. And it's looking a little bit more like the indigenous worldview that we have to understand ourselves within the broader context. It's not just philosophers who are looking at understanding the interplay of the individual and the systems we're nested in. It's also psychologists. There's new fields of ecological and systems approaches to psychology, which really emphasize our nested relationships. Ecological psychology, for example, emphasizes the interdependence between individuals and their physical and social and natural environments. Systemic approaches to psychology, like family systems theory, cultural psychology, emphasize the way we're shaped by our social and cultural context. And you're never just self-made, which of course is resonant for me. And this idea is leading to the development of new approaches to psychology that emphasize the interconnectedness of the individual within the broader context, and that also seeks to understand behaviors in a more holistic and integrated way. So if in the West, the movement toward individualism, a much needed thing at a time when life wasn't necessarily always valued, if you weren't of noble position, that the movement toward individualism has swung much more toward toxic individualism, then maybe this movement back to the ecological self will just save us. So while all of this is happening, you know, in the West, we're sort of gradually re-realizing that we belong to the earth and to each other, and that who we are is largely made by each other and the earth, that we are tapping back into other options for identity that are in existence all over the planet in a category I would generally name the ensouled world. The goal of being in an ensouled world is just to inhabit your core essence and to cultivate a deeper understanding of this interconnectedness with all things and to align your daily actions with this understanding. If you are acting out of oneness, how would you behave? I'll give you a few examples worldwide from things that have some variation on this. So let's look at animism. Animism says that the self is intimately connected to the natural world and humans are just one part of a larger ecosystem of living beings. The goal of spiritual practice is to maintain balance and harmony between humans and the natural world. From the South Indian Dravidians to the Irish Druids, animists honor the inherent local spirit 
especially those of trees and rivers and mountains, and say that everything is alive and ensouled and, as the name suggests, animated. So that's animism. In indigenous and land-based traditions, they also think humans are part of the natural world and believe in reciprocal relationships where humans have a responsibility to care for the land. And in fact, in most of these traditions, there is no nature. They are so in nature, so part of nature, that there's no nature to respect. It's just part of them. They're part of it. Like the air we're breathing, the atmosphere. The atmosphere is nature. Why name it? In some of the Indian traditions, which I mentioned Tantra earlier, I'll mention again, the individual self here is understood as a willingly contracted, limited expression of the divine consciousness. So spiritual practice here involves the process of self-realization, where you can bump out and perceive yourself as part of the divine consciousness, and then drop back into the body. The body and all of the experiences in your body are holy, holy. Nothing is wrong. Nothing is shameful. It's all a pathway to divinity. Similarly, in Advaita Vedanta, the true self is identical with the ultimate reality. The individual self, they say, is ultimately illusory, and the individual self is considered an illusion with the goal of spiritual practice being to realize the oneness. Now, I don't think that's true. I think while that's the true self is identical with the ultimate reality, okay, sure, but it has the risk of really putting us into a box where the body and the life in the body isn't real. And I really like Tantra more because of the way it says both and you are both the eternal and the temporary experience of individuated consciousness in a body. I could go on. Panentheists, pantheists, panpsychists, cosmopsychism. There's all different ways to talk about this, but I'm not going to get all geeked out on it because I want to drop us back into how this identity really impacts how we live and work and be on the earth. I was just thinking about like how heartbroken it is to value love and unconditional love so much and to still see this incredible violence that we do to each other and the level at which fear is running the show. And so I think if we go back to this idea of subject-object consciousness and Western thought and its impact on how we're related, and we decide for ourselves that we'd like a different story of how we're related, we have the potential to really change everything, how we do business and how we govern and how we make families, etc. So let's say we went to this thought that humans are a product of the Earth's biological and evolutionary processes, they share a common ancestry with all living organisms on Earth, that we have evolved by the interplay with the planet's environmental conditions like climate and geography and resources, that we interact with every other species in the environment in complex ways, that we alter ecosystems through our actions like deforestation or pollution or resource consumption, uh, that we have developed different ritual ways of relating to the planet, giving spiritual significance and sacred significance to natural features, developing cultural practices that are tied to the relationship with the earth and its cycles. And, you know, while it's been 
not so prevalent in the Western world. What I'm seeing now is in my communities, both the ones I conduct and the ones that I'm part of, is a resurgence to following the cycles of the earth in the rebirth of ritual and embodiment and land-based celebrations, that spirituality and attunement to earth and to being part of the earth isn't found inside of a building with stained glass. It's found by being with one another and dropping in, dropping deeply, deeply in to the cycle of life in these beautiful bodies and then occasionally bouncing out to remember that you are part of the oneness. Okay, I appreciate you listening so much. Please visit me at the.rose.woman on Instagram and visit my company at rosebudwoman on Instagram and see what you can find for beautiful gifts for yourself and for things that can heal and celebrate your perfect, beautiful embodiment all the days of your life. Mm-hmm.